You are tuned to Community Radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Thursday, October 27th. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. In response to a massive shortage, new state rules require building affordable housing in single-family neighborhoods as a way to make up for past racial segregation. The California report zeroes in on the pushback from communities that are trying to avoid the new mandates. After regional news and weather, Al Stoller chats with Sands Hall about the craft of story. We end with an essay by Molly Fisk. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. Facing a massive housing shortage, state leaders are mandating California cities plan for 2.5 million new homes and apartments by 2031. Central to this effort is not just how much to build, but where. New rules require cities to locate affordable housing in single-family neighborhoods as a way to combat decades of racial segregation. But residents in some California cities are pushing back. KQED's Aaron Baldessari has this story from Menlo Park. In Nicole Tassari's neighborhood, Halloween decorations are on full display. Our neighborhood is like the Halloween neighborhood. She lives in Suburban Park. We take a short walk from her home to the site of a former elementary school. So here it is. We're looking at what is the old flood school site. It's a vacant lot that's flanked on two sides by rows of single-family homes. People would go in here and, like, light off fireworks and let their dogs run around. So she and her neighbors were excited when, earlier this year, the Ravenswood City School District proposed building affordable teacher housing here. That is, until they learned how big it would be. Four stories tall with 90 units. They tried to negotiate with the city council to reduce the size of the project. It's about density and how to make it work with the neighborhood so that it's not going to create a ton of traffic that makes it dangerous for the kids playing in the street every single day. They couldn't reach an agreement. So she started gathering signatures and got an initiative on the ballot this November. It would require a vote for any changes to what can be built in single-family neighborhoods like Suburban Park. Josari says the goal is to make it harder to build apartments there. But opponents say that will only worsen racial inequities in the city. When we go over the overpass, there's such a distinct difference between the Bellhaven neighborhood and the rest of Menlo Park. Pam Jones is a longtime resident of Bellhaven, which is separated from Suburban Park by Highway 101. When the two neighborhoods were first built, Suburban Park had racial covenants prohibiting people of color from living there. Real estate agents steered black families to Bellhaven instead. Today, it's the most diverse neighborhood in the city, with large populations of Latinx and Asian residents. And though Suburban Park has remained relatively unchanged in the past 20 years, Bellhaven has borne the brunt of the city's explosive tech industry growth, fueled by Facebook. I felt like one day I went to work, and then I came home, and there were these apartments. In 2016, city officials planned for nearly all of its new office and housing growth to be placed here. Four million square feet of commercial development and 5,500 new housing units. Much of that construction is underway. It's challenging because of the noise. And then a sense of, well, you don't have any place else to put it, so you're dumping it on us. 
For Jones, making it harder to build apartments in single-family neighborhoods is just a continuation of policies that have disproportionately harmed people of color. For me, and this is why I work so hard, it's really about racism. It's about classism. And whenever you say, you're going to change my neighborhood, you're going to blight my neighborhood, you are talking about people of color. If it's approved, Menlo Park officials have said that in the long term, the ballot measure could make it harder to reverse racial segregation in housing. For the first time, cities up and down California have to demonstrate how they'll do that in their housing element. That's a blueprint the state requires every eight years, showing how cities will meet their housing goals. And California's Housing and Community Development Department is actually holding them accountable. Chris Elmendorf is a law professor at UC Davis. HCD, the state housing agency, is no longer treating housing element approvals as a one-and-done proposition. HCD is instead treating the housing elements as an eight-year contract. If cities break that contract, they face some real consequences. They could lose state funding, face lawsuits, and developers could introduce large housing projects. Neighborhood groups that are trying to wrest back control may end up undermining the very objective that they hope to pursue. Cities like Encinitas that have passed measures similar to what is being proposed in Menlo Park are finding those restrictions increasingly at odds with new state housing law, and in some cases are ignoring them altogether. Elmendorf says the lesson there is... The voters can't exempt themselves from that law. Whatever happens in Menlo Park, Jones and Chassari do agree on one point. The ballot measure is about the future of the city, And who gets the last word on what can be built and where? For The California Report, I'm Erin Baldessari. Support for Proposition 30 has fallen to well below a majority. The Clean Air Initiative would tax the wealthiest Californians to pay for electric car rebates. KQED's climate editor Kevin Stark reports. Governor Gavin Newsom's opposition to Prop 30 appears to resonate with Californians. The latest poll shows that only 41 percent of likely voters support the measure. That's down from 55 percent in September. Mark Baldessari with the Public Policy Institute. There are a lot of things that people uh, liked about it, but they're just hearing too many things that, from people that they trust that raise questions about whether this is a kind of climate change uh, bill that they s- should support. Newsom has argued Prop 30 is unnecessary and could disrupt the state's finances. His opposition has him at odds with members of his own party, who say it's a vital investment. For The California Report, I'm Kevin Stark. Support for The California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation, recognizing young social entrepreneurs through the Wesley Prize for Young Innovators of California. Information about how to apply is available at wesley.org. Personal Capital providing people with financial tools like the Retirement Planner to help them achieve their financial goals, personalcapital.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, coming this fall, the launch of research vessel Falcor 2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration, on the web at schmidtocean.org. That's Bay Area band Mariposas del Alma covering Si No Te Hubiera Sido by Marco Antonio Solis at KQED's first ever Dia de los Muertos event last night. The Mexican tradition takes place the first two days of November and celebrates the people in our lives who've passed away. This year, I'm thinking of my grandpa, my papi Tomas. 
He loved to make us laugh, and he knew how to make a spicy salsa verde. Let us know who you'll be putting on your altar this year. You can tweet me at bymadibolaños. And that's the California Report for Thursday, October 27th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. In regional news, Caltrans and Placer County transportation planners are considering expanding the popular Capital Corridor commuter train service up the Sierra to the Lake Tahoe and Reno areas, and the Sacramento Bee reports they are seeking input from the public. Caltrans and the Placer County Transportation Planning Agency announced this week they are studying what improvements would be needed to provide Capital Corridor service from Sacramento to Tahoe and Reno Sparks. Capital Corridor now provides service from Auburn to San Jose, with most trains operating between Sacramento and the Bay Area. One round-trip train per day serves Placer County with stops in Roseville, Rockland, and Auburn. An increase in service is already in the works for Roseville, and now an expansion of service to the Lake Tahoe and Reno areas is under consideration. Stops could include Colfax, Soda Springs, and Truckee, as well as Reno and Sparks, according to a feasibility study produced by Caltrans and the Nevada Department of Transportation. Riders are encouraged to fill out a survey posted online as the agencies gauge public interest in the possible expansion. Starting Tuesday, the United Way of Nevada County starts its donation drive for coats, hats, gloves, and socks for those in our community who need warmth the most. The majority of those in need are families with children. The collection drive will help these households and individuals stay warm during the winter months. From next Tuesday through December 16th, Coats, hats, gloves, and socks can be dropped off at many locations in the community, including the Rood Center, South Yuba Club, B&C, and Hills Flat Lumber. On November 5th and 12th, Peace Lutheran Church of Grass Valley will host two-hour seminars on NASA's James Webb Space Telescope. The seminars will be presented by Sierra College physics professor Sterling Bailey, Sierra College astronomy professor David Dunn, and retired pastor and amateur astronomer David Mullen. They will describe how the Webb Space Telescope enables the collection of never-before-seen images of the universe. Many of these recent images will be displayed on a large projection screen. The seminars are sponsored by the Contemporary Issues Study Group at Peace Lutheran. They will begin at 10 a.m. on November 5th and 12th. If you want to fell your own Christmas tree in the Sierra Nevada, you'll need a permit from the U.S. Forest Service, which will only be sold in person this season. The Sacramento Bee reports that South Lake Tahoe Basin Management Unit will be selling Christmas tree permits beginning November 14th. Permits will be sold in person at the South Lake Tahoe Supervisor's Office at 35 College Drive on a first-come, first-served basis, the Forest Service announced. Each permit will be sold for $10 and must be used by the person who purchased it. Only one permit per family is allowed, and they will be valid until December 31st. The office is open from 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Monday through Friday. And finally, if you or your stuff would like to star in a reality television show, be advised the American Pickers are coming to Nevada County in January. The weekly History Channel show is looking for large private collections of antiques that are unique and have a story behind them. If you think your stuff fits the bill, email AmericanPickers at Cineflex.com. 
Turning to the forecast from the National Weather Service and air quality data from purpleair.com, we'll have seasonable temperatures and dry conditions through Monday with a chance of rain developing in the middle of next week. It will be mostly clear tonight in Nevada City and Grass Valley with a low in the mid-40s. Today, the air quality index was measuring around 10. Friday will be mostly sunny with a high of 67 and a low around 42. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe tonight, mostly clear with a low in the mid-20s. The air quality index today was averaging in the low single digits. Friday will be mostly clear with a high in the mid-50s and a low around 24. In Sacramento and Woodland tonight, clear with a low in the mid-40s. Today's air quality index was averaging about 10. Friday will be mostly sunny with a high near 73. Friday night will be mostly clear with a low in the mid-40s. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Like painters, sculptors, fiber artists, welders, any creator, those who make art from words need a good grasp of their craft. Here's KVMR's Al Stoller in conversation with writer, actor, and educator Sands Hall about the craft of storytelling. Sands, what do you mean by the craft of the story writer? Understanding what makes writing effective when something really moves me or something really just strikes me as amazing, to pause for a moment and ask, how did they do that? What are they doing on the page that makes me feel that way or see so clearly or understand so deeply? That's where I believe craft is this lovely, lovely thing to look into. What sort of tools can you teach for craft? This afternoon, I've been asked to teach a class on campus I retired some years ago, but I've been asked to return for some fun activities. And I'll be talking to students today about elements of scene, talking about what a scene is. So this is a tool, all stories, whatever form they take, whether it's a movie or a a short story or a play or a novel or a memoir, they proceed by scenes. We have to have something happen and then something else happens and then something else happens. That's how story unfolds to us. And there's various ways to get those across to the reader. We can just tell them there was a terrible car accident at the corner of 20th and Maple, or we can dramatize that terrible accident. And that depends on what we want the reader to get out of it. How important is this? That's just one tool. Another one in creative writing would be our point of view. Who is doing the telling? Who's the narrator of my book? Another one might be style, even that simple, which is how do my sentences get down on the page? Or how do I use punctuation? Poetry, for instance, has all kinds of questions of that nature in it. I like to cover all of those ideas when I teach, or sometimes they're focused and sometimes, of course, tries to cover sort of a slew of them. It is only in practicing that wonderful word of practicing our craft, do we get to our art? I like to think of the story as something our minds use. We use certain kind of baskets for collecting flowers or eggs. We use stories 
as a way of organizing our thoughts. That's such an excellent point. Poetry, uh, especially, I think, song has been around as long as I think we've been around, humans have been around, as ways to get things across to each other, to to communicate, to commiserate, to join in, um, in joy and sorrow. And I think, yeah, I think story is just at the basis of uh, humanity and, and culture, really. <laughs> what is special or unique about the craft of the memoirist, someone who's telling their own story? Even in memoir, point of view becomes very important because there's at least two yous telling the story. There's the one that's looking back, the one that is remembering older, wiser. I lived through this experience and I'm going to tell it to you now, but also the narrator that lived through it. And you want to get back to that original thing we were talking about to dramatize the scenes that that were so important that this person now wants to write a memoir about what happened. So that, again, you're not just telling what happened, but you are dramatizing, showing, putting into scene what happened that that the, the writer now feels that there's something they want to tell. Sands, you're going to be back on the West Coast in the very near future, and you're going to be teaching some classes. What are you going to be teaching? This weekend, I'm teaching an intensive on scene, elements of scene. Starting in early November, a six-week course, we'll meet once a week on Saturdays, called The Next Draft, which is tools. You know, you come in with what your current draft is, but I'm going to give you tools to go back to your revision with things that you can apply to the rewriting. How can people learn more about it and how can they sign up? Go to my website, sandshall.com, go to courses and check out what's interesting. And then I will get in touch when I next teach that course. The website again? sandshall.com. Sounds really good talking with you. Have a really good trip back. Thanks, Al. Thank you so much. I'm speaking with Sands Hall. For KVMR, I'm Al Stolley. At 7.30 this evening at the Nevada Theater, Sands Hall will be part of the cast of My Body, No Choice, an evening of monologues from American playwrights reflecting on women's choices, past, present, and future. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. Well, let's see. This week, my Wi-Fi's been down for six days, through no fault of either my own or my carrier. It's the fault of T-Mobile's tower, which suddenly stopped talking to all our roof antennae. Not having computer screens that work in the house has led me to read books, of all things, and go to bed very early. I must race to coffee shops when I need to send an email or post something for the class I'm teaching online. One of my cats has been to the vet with a punctured foot from the aggression of a feral invader who wants to live here with us and whom I keep chasing off the deck with a broom in honor of Halloween season. This is a cat, not a skunk. I'm waiting to borrow the county's have-a-heart trap and donate him to a friend across town who has too many gophers and mice. My 20-year-old car's passenger-side front window suddenly began listing to starboard as it was rolled down, so I got to watch Rex take the door apart and re-glue the little clips holding the glass in place. 
the glue was very black and gloppy. We think this will work, but it's too soon to tell for sure. Scott's Flat Lake, source of my sanity and braggadocio since Memorial Day, suddenly dropped ten degrees over two nights and is probably too cold to swim in anymore. But since I feel a little bit ill, I am not testing it out today. An unidentified illness, somewhat more mysterious than the charming vertigo-migraine combination that happens to me every time the barometer shifts, which I am experiencing as well. What else? The heater doesn't work for some reason, though I have a full tank of propane. I've called for help, but not heard back yet. Luckily, this house has many blankets, and also is right now this minute receiving a new front door. One that doesn't show sunlight all along the left side when it's closed, like the old one did. I love the old one, and we tried all sorts of repairs to door jam and door sill so I could keep it, but nothing worked. Last winter, I hung a quilt over it, which was both ineffective and a pain in the bohunkus. So this year, I am acting like a grown-up and fixing the problem. Let me pause in this recitation of first-world problems to say that I don't want to be a grown-up, but there really is no way to deny it since I'm in my late 60s. It turns out my capacity for self-delusion is quite capacious, but even I must now admit the buck stops here. Or rather, as this week, the buck starts here and is handed over to the vet, the car repair shop, the pharmacy, and Bruce Beale Construction, savior of all things that go wrong with my house. Thank heavens I know and love all these helpers, and they're available to help. I can complain, and as you've noticed, I often do. But it's a thin film of crankiness over a deep layer of gratitude for the people who know how to fix things. Now, if one of you would just figure out how to warm up that lake all winter, my life would be perfect. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast for Thursday, October 27th. KVMR Community Radio gets support from our valued listeners and from Serino's at Main Street, serving Italian cuisine since 1983. Open Wednesday through Sunday, 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. for lunch and dinner, offering private dining snugs available for customer safety and comfort. Information, serenos at MainStreet.com. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Please join us Friday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News. (laughs) 